You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 434 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. And I think we need something a little lighter. How does that sound? The last several episodes, pretty heavy stuff, actually. And there's reasons for that. If you listened to those episodes, you understand those reasons. I think enough has been said for now, hopefully for some time, on those matters covered in previous episodes. If you want to go back and listen to them, you can, but why repeat myself when you could just do that? You can just (laughs) go back and listen to what I already said rather than me repeat myself. In this episode, I'd like to talk about Tolkien and Lewis and Disney and fairy tales, and fantasy. And the prompt here is a screen capture that was sent me by my neighbor two houses down yesterday, J.P. Chavez. It is from a Twitter account called The Middle Earth Mixer. It says, and I quote, Reminder of Tolkien thoughts on Walt Disney. Disney has always seemed to me hopelessly corrupted, though in most of the pictures proceeding from his studios, there are admirable or charming passages. The effect of all of them is to me disgusting. Some have given me nausea. And I quote, (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, John Ronald Rule. We're not sure we caught it. Uh, pretty strong words, pretty strong words for a Brit to say that Walt Disney pictures made him nauseous. But before we get into that, and there is definitely more to say, and I was very fascinated actually to do a little bit of sleuthing last night and to try and unpack why he would say that. And, uh, in the process also finding some of what Lewis had to say on the matter, I have a little bit of a uh, rabbit trail, if you will, regarding the color yellow. And of course, that track at the top of this episode is Yellow by Coldplay. Very evocative. 
But it's interesting, you know, this song has as its title a color, and it's funny to me that the color being named, even if you're just listening to the song, you're not even looking at the color, carries with it a certain emotion or a range of emotions or a certain spectrum of emotions. It's interesting to me that yellow can mean happiness, for instance, and it can also mean other things. It can also mean cowardice. It can also mean cheerfulness. It can also mean caution. But I've decided here, (laughs) almost by accident, that I would like to make my featured images, at least for a time, it'll probably get old, but at least for a time, uh, all yellow. We'll just go with a a yellow-colored featured image theme at the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. When I post these podcast episodes to the website, and you can go check it out and see what I mean, but when I post these episodes to the website, maybe it would be fun to just make them all yellow-colored and see how long I can keep that up, just for the fun of it, right? Just for funsies. I do want most people to feel happy when they come to my website or engage with my content. So that fits. If they come to the website and they see a lot of yellow featured images and it's done tastefully, then perhaps with that will come a certain cheerfulness, which is good to feel, which is important to feel now and then, particularly with the world as it is. But the exception is where I don't necessarily want everyone who comes to my site to feel happy. The exception is villains. I don't necessarily want villains to come to my website and feel happy so long as they are committed to being villains anyway. I should like them to feel ashamed of themselves and their cowardice. And yellow is also evocative of the coward. In old Western movies, there's this trope of one cowboy challenging another to a duel by calling him yellow-bellied. And that is to say, he lacks courage. What are you, chicken? Marty McFly gets asked, and it always leads to him picking up the gauntlet. He can't stand to be called a chicken. He can't stand for anyone to think that he's a coward, that he lacks courage. When he happens to travel back to cowboy times, and he's confronted by the ancestor of his arch nemesis in his own timeline, Biff, he gets called yellow-bellied, and that is part of the challenge to a duel. And of course, he picks up the gauntlet just like he does every other time, because he can't stand to be called a coward. But in truth, courage in the fullest sense has to do with integrity and virtue more broadly. So I think that fits also. Those who are wanting to be courageous, I want them to get courage from listening to my podcast and even from the visuals that I choose. And those who are committed to trying to tear down virtue and what is good because they are villains, because they are envious and bitter and wicked and corrupt, I want them to be reminded of what cowards they are and that we're not afraid of them and we refuse to be afraid of them. We 
insist on being cheerful even as we oppose them. And besides that, it occurs to me, as I've made this decision almost by accident, the colors which have come to associate my brand, if you will, are black and white and yellow. And my reasons for this, when I think about it, at first, were just as simple as, well, I think they look good together. That's all. I just like the way they look together. I like the way I feel when I see those colors together in my logo or on my website. But besides that, why? Why do I like the way that I feel when I see black and white and yellow in my brand? For one, I am a rather black and white sort of person compared with most, particularly where the Christian worldview is concerned, particularly relative our postmodern, post-truth, post-Christian civilization. I am decidedly black and white, but I should like to see our civilization here in America return to truth and Christianity, to not continue on being post-truth and post-Christian. And if it doesn't, I don't believe it can survive, nor do I believe we can survive. So every view on my website is precious, and so is every listen on a podcast episode, and so is every comment from a listener. That holds true, especially when my wife and my children or my friends and family are the ones commenting, but I should think if all of us were trying more to reach our homes first, then our circle of friends, then our places of work, and even our churches, to the end of more faith in and fear of God and more virtue and more kindness and more truth, we would get a revival and restoration of Christian life and thought in this country. And that would be a good thing. And the cynics can keep their cynicism to themselves. I should like to continue on being cheerful about this goal because I do believe it is a good and worthy goal and that it is right and proper to think bigger picture even when you work in the details, maybe especially when you work in the details so you don't lose perspective as to why the details matter or what they might add up to, especially concerning what ends you will get when you employ certain means. One has to start somewhere. And I think there is nowhere better to start than when you have your own family and your own circle of friends and your own circle of coworkers and fellow churchgoers. At least that's the conclusion I've come to. I believe it's correct. The more I meditate on God's word and read history and survey current events, but to that, you might say, <laughs> if I'm using yellow in a very subtle fashion, am I being manipulative? Maybe. I hope not, but maybe. I think here it's one thing to manipulate oneself or to put little reminders like post-it notes, but subtler. I think that's part of what I'm trying to do with the yellow. I'm putting it there because it pleases me, because I like to look at it. And if I like to look at it, 
well, then maybe others will as well. Maybe I'm doing unto others as I would have them do unto me. It is quite another thing, though, when others do it to you in a deceptive way. So I suppose that's why I'm explaining the decision to you right now, so that you don't feel manipulated, but you will understand what my reasons are and what I'm doing there. Moving on briefly, I am reading Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, actually, by Gavin Ortland, and also discussing the book as I go with Paul Pavlik and J.P. Chavez over Signal. I am really enjoying this utility website app, Hoopla. It is a extension of the public libraries system. And all I needed to do to get signed up was have my wife's <laughs> library card because I don't have a library card because I don't ever go to the library, but she had one and she wasn't using it at the moment. And so I used hers to sign up just to get this book in particular. I was given a pro tip by Paul Pavlik, but with the recession on, it might be a good idea to look at ways to cut costs like using Hoopla wherever possible to check out audiobooks, especially if you go through quite a lot of audiobooks. So maybe, at least for a season, the books that pass the sniff test on a first read-through on Hoopla will buy paperback copies of from thrift books. That's basically what we were doing with Audible. I would listen to audiobooks on Audible and then if they passed the sniff test, if they turned out to be very good, so good and super convicting as the popular evangelical commentary typically goes, if they turn out to be so good and super convicting, we buy a physical copy to keep on the shelf as a reference. If the kids are interested, if they're asking questions about the topic, I can reach for it, hand it to them. They can read as much of it as they like. They can quote from it if they want to. Maybe we transition from using Audible quite so much to using Hoopla more, and that helps us to be thriftier and more frugal. But speaking of books and speaking of media more generally, I would like to share with you some really interesting quotes from J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis regarding Walt Disney. And I say these are really interesting. I think you'll find them interesting. If you are an American of about my age, or really of any age at this point, with as long as Walt Disney's content has been out there in pop culture, how many of us grew up watching Walt Disney movies, you have something to say about Walt Disney. Whether you love Walt Disney movies, whether you can't stand them, whether they've always given you the creeps, you have an opinion. And so also did Tolkien and Lewis. But here was Tolkien's opinion of Disney. And it took me somewhat by surprise, but it's a happy surprise, I think. It's all yellow <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. He says, and I quote again, I recognize his talent, but it has always seemed to me hopelessly corrupted, though in most of the pictures proceeding from his studio, 
there are admirable or charming passages. The effect of all of them is, to me, disgusting. Some have given me nausea. So, this is a comment about Walt Disney. This is a remark about even the movies, the films, the pictures, as he calls them, motion pictures, Walt Disney was putting out in the beginning, which we think of as being the most innocent, the most wholesome, the least concerning, Tolkien was nauseated by. So I read this quote, and that led me to do a little bit of research, and that took me to an article from winteriscoming.net by a certain Monique Jacobs, published about a year ago, in which she unpacks what Tolkien and Lewis had to say about Disney. And it turns out, interestingly enough, Tolkien was dead set against Walt Disney ever making his books into movies. He was dead set against it. It was something that was floated. His publisher apparently also contacted Walt Disney, probably behind his back, given how strongly Tolkien had made his feelings known. But Tolkien was dead set against it because, if I may, he saw Walt Disney as having bastardized fairy tales to make money. Now, I would contend Disney was trying to do what he was doing with fairy tales for other reasons besides just making money. I think that Disney, also being a propagandist, was promoting a progressive New World Order uh, view of our past and ourselves. And he was using traditional stories, old stories, fairy tales, as a vehicle, if you will. Let's use these cultural tales to persuade everyone that the new speak, the new way of seeing ourselves and one another, the new way of relating is quite correct. And let's do that with children because children are very impressionable. If we can do that with children, well, we'll train them up in the way that we think they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart from it. So Mark L. Pinsky has a great book about Disney called The Gospel According to Disney. And you should definitely check it out if you want to think more intentionally, think more deeply about the worldview inherent to Disney's portrayal of certain things. I, for one, read the book 10 to 15 years ago, and I found in it explanation for things which were only impressions, very, very fuzzy impressions from watching the movies. For instance, Walt Disney grew up in allegedly a very austere religious Christian home, and he resented that. He resented his father and the strictness of his father and the strictness of the Christian upbringing. And so when it came time for him to be influencing at first a whole country's children, and then eventually a great deal of the world's children, Disney wanted everything to be a great deal more fun and innocent and carefree and personal and cuddly and also more or less values neutral. If you notice, there are almost no overt portrayals of Christianity in Walt Disney movies. The exception being a picture that was made 
by Walt Disney's brother, which is actually on the short list of my favorite movies. So dear to my heart. It's a combination live action and animation picture about a boy who's being raised by his grandmother. Who knows where his parents are? That's another thing you realize when you read Mark Alpinsky's book, he points out, where are the parents, right? Like every Disney film, every Disney motion picture, every Disney animation has a broken family. Where are the parents? Where's mom? Where's dad? Where are the both of them? Why is this young man, this young woman being raised by a single parent or a grandmother or a stepmother or no parent at all, just raising themselves? Why is that a theme? If you ever thought about it, isn't that interesting? But so dear to my heart has an overtly Christian moral. And there are a lot of biblical references that are overt in so dear to my heart. But everything else, with the exception of, let's say, maybe the hunchback of Notre Dame, there's almost no references to Christianity per se. No overt references. And then in Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Christian character, supposedly, so-called, is the villain. He's corrupt. He's wicked. He's evil. He's the bad guy. So I read this book a long while ago, and it did shape the way that I watched, the way I thought of Disney Fair. And then when I was writing it on the Rocks blog years ago, it's been a while since I wrote anything at on the Rocks, but when I was writing there, I covered a few of the more recent Disney animated films after watching them with my kids and just feeling really uncomfortable with the answers to the questions that came to mind as I was watching. And especially the question of what is the moral of the story supposed to be here? Yes, the images are skillfully drawn, adorable, charming, colorful, vibrant. Yes, I like the way I feel when I look at these images, but then when I listen to the dialogue, when I pay attention to the story arc, when I look at the character development, when I look at the relationship of the characters to one another and to the story arc, something is amiss. And what is it? Now, I'll tell you, I was fully persuaded when I wrote what I did for On the Rocks, I was just sure everyone is going to think I'm being a stick in the mud. Don't go messing with Walt Disney. You're messing with my childhood. Well, guess what? It's my childhood too. So (laughs) I know how you feel. But I was surprised that some reached out to me and said, I really am glad that you wrote this because I just watched this movie with my daughter too. I just watched this movie with my kids too. And I was feeling like, am I crazy that this is bothering me? Why is this bothering me so much? It's such a beautiful film. Why am I being bothered by it? Anyone complimenting me for the effort at all or thanking me for my work with regards to Disney came as a surprise to me. And some parents did reach out to say those things. Thank you for writing about this. I thought I was taking crazy pills to have objections, to have concerns, to feel uncomfortable. You talking more seriously about the trouble with the content, particularly the moral of the story, made me feel like I'm not alone. So they were encouraged. Instead of being discouraged and everything's awful, they were encouraged. 
And I'm glad about that. But it is very interesting in light of that being my backstory, my frame of reference. It is very interesting to get Tolkien's and Lewis's insights from the golden age of Disney. Tolkien and Lewis writing about this in the late 30s, early 40s. Here we have two master storytellers who are so expert in their work and also expert in the work of other master storytellers from centuries past. They know what they're talking about, in other words, and they don't have an objection to content being made for children, but yet because they care about what content is given to children, they care about that so much, and they know how much good can come from good content being given to children, they have something to say about Disney and what Disney's putting out. One wonders, I certainly wonder, what they would have to say if they were alive right now and could see what the Walt Disney Company has become and what the Walt Disney Company is putting out. If they were provoked back in the 30s and 40s, (laughs) 1930s and 1940s, if they were provoked back then, man alive, would they have something to say today? But another quote, besides the one I read for you for Tolkien's take, C.S. Lewis also, speaking of Walt Disney, all the terrifying bits were good, and the animals really most moving, and the use of shadows of dwarves and vultures was real genius. What might not have come of it if this man had been educated or even brought up in a decent society? (laughs) Elsewhere in the winter is coming article, which is a reference to Game of Thrones, by the way, for those of you unfamiliar. There's a paragraph here. According to the J.R.R. Tolkien Companion and Guide, Tolkien went to see Snow White with his literary frenemy, C.S. Lewis, the author of The Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis, who had seen the movie already, had some very strong opinions about it. In a letter to a friend, he called Disney a, quote, poor boob, end quote, (laughs) and wrote that, quote, dwarfs ought to be ugly, of course, but not in that way, end quote. (laughs) Oh, the Brits. Disney was a poor boob. Strong words for Brits. What it is is that they took fairy tales very seriously, and they were inspired by fairy tales to write the Chronicles of Narnia, to write The Lord of the Rings, to write The Hobbit. And these are very rich, dense, complex, multi-layered narratives. Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia. You can enjoy them as a child on something of a more superficial level, but they have depth to them. You can peel back layers as you get older and as you contemplate them. And there is some substance, and there's more substance, and there's more. The further in you go, and the further you contemplate, the further you consider, the further you discuss the ideas there. Is there any such depth, complexity, richness to what Disney was putting out? And if there is, is it depth 
of the sort which builds good character? Or is it depth of the sort which is rotten after a fashion? I've seen for years as I at various times picked up this research again. Some have pointed out how Disney animators for a long time drew scandalous things into the background or into furniture or what have you. Just very, very subtle uh, inclusion of explicit imagery as a kind of practical joke amongst themselves. Things which would not be noticed by children and most parents who were just giving a quick glance to the picture or the image or the still, but which they would notice, they would recognize, they had planted in there. And we're talking phallic symbols, for instance, for example. You know, when that's getting put into the story in very, very subtle ways by use of images, when the dialogue is such and such that you realize, hey, this is actually a fairly suggestive reference, but it presents itself as very innocent on the surface, it's worthwhile to ask the question of what the moral of the story is. Is it a good moral or is it a bad moral? However it makes us feel, we need to peel back our emotivist bias where we like to feel a certain way. It's not wrong to feel a certain way, but right feeling has to do with right thinking and right action and right belief. What is true and what is good and how are our emotions all bound up in what is good and what is true? For Lewis and Tolkien, the problem with Disney was not, first and foremost, he was corrupt, you know, trying to peddle sexual immorality to kids or anything like that. The trouble with Lewis and Tolkien, or rather the, the trouble they had with Disney, was that Disney was being very cynical in what he thought kids could understand or what they would like or what would be good for them. He was being very cynical and he was stripping away the depth. And in a sense, he was very much dumbing down fairy tales and fables that had so much more complexity to them, which is important in the formation of young minds and young hearts so that they grow up into virtuous adults. I actually think this is very much of a piece. Their objections, the substance of their objections to Disney, I think is very much of a piece with the criticism that I've had about VeggieTales. There is a cynical quality to the way VeggieTales presumes to adjust biblical stories. And actually, I think VeggieTales is arguably worse because Disney was fiddling with fables and fairy tales. And yes, Tolkien especially had a lot to say. He's got a 41-page essay called On Fairy Stories, titled On Fairy Stories. He was going to deliver a lecture at St. Andrews in 1938, and this essay was the basis for what he was going to say to them. He has a lot to say about fairy tales and their importance and their value and why it's good that we have fairy tales and why fairy tales are not just for children. He has a lot to say about 
what goes into a good fairy tale, what makes a good fairy tale, why we need them. And I don't know whether I agree with all of his points, but the intentionality there and also what he produced with The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, it deserves consideration. We do well to consider how fairy tales, even if we want to say they're only for children, need to be considered with regards to what sort of adults they're likely to help produce and what kind of adults have the Walt Disney fairy tales helped to produce. I am one. I grew up with a lot of Walt Disney animated films. And I remember anytime we encountered some other family where the kids were not allowed to watch Disney movies at all, I always just couldn't believe it. I always thought, man, those parents are so boring and strict and backwards and sticks in the mud. So it's been very reluctant. (laughs) My feeling drawn to amend, modify my own opinion on Walt Disney content because I grew up with it because I thought it was very, very wholesome. But then you read someone like George MacDonald and The Princess and the Goblin, and you realize, by contrast, there's a cotton candy quality to the Disney fair. It is of a piece with the push towards watering down our loyalty to family, to creed, to nation, to culture of origin. There is a very subtle type of brainwashing that Walt Disney Fair engages in. And you and I, if we grew up on Disney, we didn't know it. And for many adults, they still don't know it. They still don't know where they got their attitudes and their ideas from. But they were conditioned towards emotivism in large part thanks to Walt Disney content as a kid. And yes, also the public schools. But when they went home and they were being entertained, when they were being babysat by the TV, watching these classics again and again and again, they were being conditioned by Walt Disney to be emotivists, to be secularists, to be multiculturalists, to be globalists, to be atheists in a certain sense. Believe in yourself. That's terrible advice. Is that all you've got? Read George MacDonald. He inspired Tolkien and Lewis both, and not for no reason. And you'll see what Tolkien is talking about in his essay on fairy stories. George MacDonald writes brilliantly, and it would be great if more of our children's entertainment was like that. This is fun. It's sweet. It has a simplicity to it. But every now and then, there's a line of dialogue with regards to what's happening in the narrative, which makes you go, hmm, that's a great point. And not in a campy way. I think it's awful that so many are so flippant when they do have a good moral. They're so flippant in putting out material that is just not of a very good quality artistically. They just slapped it together and they expect, again, I would say, in a cynical way, they expect people to eat it up. The Disney Fair, at least, was skillful from the standpoint of a technical artistry, not skillful 
or not responsible anyway from the standpoint of morals, virtue, faith. But you should definitely <laughs> you should definitely be thinking about these things. We should be thinking about these things. I should be thinking about these things. Where the Walt Disney Company in their most recent Lightyear film consciously avoided inviting Tim Allen to reprise the role of Buzz Lightyear and asked Chris Evans instead and then included a gay kiss, a lesbian kiss, just because of Florida's so-called don't say gay bill. A lot of American parents read that, hear that, know that, and they wonder what in the world just happened to the Walt Disney Company. This isn't the Walt Disney Company I grew up with. This isn't the Walt Disney Company I know. Oh, but it is, though. It is. You just didn't know it until just now. They just crossed that line in an uncareful way, but they've been crossing lines for 80 years. And especially when we were children, we had no idea that it should be any other way. And that's why it's good to read other things. That's why it's good to get perspective from experts and accomplished spokespeople like Tolkien and Lewis. These recent controversies have been a long time coming. And what do we do about it? I think a lot of parents, they're upset, they're disturbed, but it's very much like the public schools. There's a flash of anger. And then when they remember that this institution they've trusted their whole lives has a monopoly on this service, they rationalize what's being done to their children because it would be inconvenient and difficult and challenging to go somewhere else. It would be challenging to homeschool their kid as they see it. They have no idea where to start. And so they rationalize what the public schools are doing to their children. It would be difficult to do without Walt Disney Entertainment. The more and more Walt Disney gets a monopoly on big brands, important brands like Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So they rationalize what Disney is doing and has been doing to children for a long time. Disney has been grooming all of us and our children for a long, long time. And not just with regards to sexuality, but yes, with regards to sexuality. What we ought not to do is we ought not to get upset and then say, uh, yes, but what are you going to do? They have a monopoly. I don't want to be that parent. I don't want to be that parent who doesn't allow my kids to do anything fun, watch anything fun. Just let it be a kid's story is what I was told by one gentleman we used to know back in Ohio. He is a bit of a perpetual adolescent, to be fair. Why do you have to ruin Disney for me? Don't do that. <laughs> and I, I responded to him. I said, well, it would be one thing if there was nowhere else to go for children's entertainment. But to my mind, it is similar to when a suspicious-looking van drives around your neighborhood advertising free candy and free ice cream for the kids. My objection is not to candy and ice cream. My objection is to the character of the gentleman who is offering said candy and ice cream. And it would be one thing if there were nowhere else to get candy and ice cream or something more robust, 
let's say, pecan pie, let's say German chocolate cake, it would be one thing if there were nowhere else to get a treat that would be both nutritious and delicious, healthier, not coming along with strings attached like Pinocchio, not turning us all into jackasses. And yet there are alternatives if you look for them, if you search for them. And I think of years ago, one of my aunts, who will remain anonymous, but my cousins will likely know which one. (laughs) One of my aunts found out that our young boys, younger then than now, were allowed to watch The Chronicles of Narnia. Someone was asking, oh, do you mind if they watch The Chronicles of Narnia at a family reunion? And Josiah, Eli, Solomon, Daniel, I think were the only ones who had been born at that point. So they were quite young. But my being asked, I laughed a short laugh. And I said, oh, of course. They've seen The Lord of the Rings. The response from my aunt was, oh, Garrett, no. Do you really think that that's a good thing for them to be watching? The Lord of the Rings is really scary. And to that I said, yes. And that's part of the point. (laughs) That is part of the point. It is scary. And I don't want my kids to be perpetually afraid. Some of where the courage needs to be got is from exposing them to things that are scary, but then explaining to them why they don't need to be afraid. And it is more than just put the emotion away. It is truth. It is, here's what's right. Here's what's good. So also, I'm stuck on that idea. I think more of us need to approach it that way. More to come. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.